My name is Joel. I'm the discipleship pastor here at Eaglemont. If you're new, I'm going to invite you, whether you're watching online or here in person, to open your Bibles to the book of John. We're going to be continuing through our series through the book of John. This morning's passage is found in John chapter 1. We're going to be looking at verses 19 to 34 together. On Wednesday, April 26, 2006, a truck driver lost control of his loaded semi crossed the median of a highway and struck a van filled with nine college students from Taylor University, a small Christian university in Indiana, who were returning from a school outing. The force of the impact was so severe it split the van open and flung the belongings and passengers across the interstate. Five of the van's passengers were killed. The other four sent to hospital with serious injuries. A staff member from the university was given the grave job of having to go onto the scene and identify the bodies of one staff and four students who had died in the crash. 18-year-old Whitney Sirak's parents, Newell and Colleen Sirak, were one of the parents who had to receive the call no parent ever wants to receive, apologizing and saying they're sorry, but they had to let them know that Whitney had gone in a head-on collision and died. The parents of another student, 22-year-old Laura Van Ryan also received a call that night. Parents Dawn and Susie, as well as her sister Lisa, were told that Laura was alive, but in critical condition and in a coma. The doctors prepared the Van Ryans that they would see Laura in an altered state. Injuries meant that she was not going to be looking like herself and potentially unrecognizable. For five weeks, the Van Ryans faithfully stood by Laura's hospital bed, cheering on every small sign of progress. On Sunday, May 7th, 11 days after the accident, Laura still remained in a coma while a memorial service was held at the university for students who had died in the crash. Finally, after 20 days, Laura began to come out of the coma. The doctors warned the family that though she was coming out of the coma, Laura was not going to be alert. Her brain was injured and it would require retraining to again be able to handle information. Over the days that followed, Laura began to be able to communicate with head nods and also weak and very limited spoken word. She was not able to correctly recall the names of people who came to see her and could not even remember her own name correctly, calling, patient, uh, calling herself Whitney. The doctors instructed the family that it was not unusual for brain injury patients to call other people the wrong names or even misidentify themselves. Over the next days, though, her family began to have some suspicions, specifically Laura's sister, Lisa, who had noticed inconsistencies in Laura. Her teeth looked different to her, and her eyes were a different shade of blue than before the accident. In her rehab appointments, the doctor would ask Laura to push a ball towards her sister, but Laura did not seem to know Lisa was her sister. Then she muttered the words to Lisa, false parents. On May 30th, 2006, after her physical therapy session, Laura's father, Don, had a quiet moment alone with Laura, taking her wheelchair back to her room. He decided to ask a question to Laura that he was afraid to ask. Can you tell me your name? She said, Whitney, as she had done before. Don then replied, that's good. You're doing so good. And he asked her then if she knew her parents' names, to which she responded, Newell and Colleen. It was at this moment that Dodd knew that this girl he and his family had been carrying for five weeks was not Laura, but rather another young woman from the accident who had already had her own funeral service several weeks earlier, Whitney Sirak. Can you imagine being in the shoes of young Whitney Sirak, awaking and being told by everyone that you were someone else that you were not?
How incredibly strange it must have been to have everyone insist you are one person, but you know internally that it's not true. Now, most likely, no one here has ever been in this situation of waking up in a coma and someone calling you a different name, but perhaps you've experienced a bit of what it's like to be told by others who you are. Maybe it's a parent who stymied you growing up, never allowing you to think for yourself. Perhaps it's a friend or peer group who pressures you and bosses you around and tells you what to think and what to do. For some of you, maybe you've settled. Instead of pursuing the dreams and desires that you've held, you've let go of those aspirations and held them secret because you were told by others you were too stupid or those are just too unachievable for you. Maybe you've been labeled or profiled because of how you look, where you live, or the people you associate with. Perhaps you're one who's lost your voice and kept silent on any issue that could lead to conflict because the experiences previous in your life have told you and led you to believe that you can't have a belief different than others from those around you, that what others say is what you have to be and what you are. The question of our identity, who are you, is such a pivotal question in our lives. In a world that pushes to influence, label, and define who you are, how do you answer the question, who am I? This is a question we see take center stage in our passage today in John chapter 1, verses 19 to 34. Now, in the first chapter of John's gospel, we were introduced to John the Baptist. John the Baptist is one of the most important characters of the New Testament, and it's why he's mentioned in all four of the gospels. In fact, he is mentioned at least 89 times in the New Testament writings. John was a powerful preacher and prophet. He was called to prepare the nation of Israel for the revival of the Messiah, the promised one who would come to set God's people free, the one Israel had been waiting for. The Bible tells us that even in the womb, John was filled with the Holy Spirit and specially called by God. Matthew 3, 4-6 gives us a little description and insight into John. It tells us that John didn't preach in the streets of the most prestigious and famous cities. Rather, he was quite wild. He preached and lived out in the wilderness. He wasn't fashionable or well-groomed. He wore camel's hair, which, in case you didn't know, was about as fashionable then as it is now. And he ate locusts, which are essentially large grasshoppers. Yet throngs of people would come out to the wilderness to hear him speak, and he had many devoted followers and disciples. Why? Who was this man? Well, this brings us to our text and the first of three important questions we're going to explore through it this morning. And that is the question, who are you? In verse 19, I'll be reading from the NIV version this morning. It says this, Now this was John's testimony when the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem sent priests and Levites to ask him who he was. That question, who are you? Can you imagine if someone came to ask you, if you had a group of leaders come to ask you that question, how would you answer? Would you maybe say what you do, your job, your occupation, maybe your ethnicity, your citizenship? Maybe share some of the credentials or the achievements that you've accumulated in your life, or maybe your last name, your family, your family of origin. Well, John responds in verse 20, he did not fail to confess, but confessed freely, I am not the Messiah. See, they thought he might be. 
They thought he might be proclaiming that. They asked him, then, who are you? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? He answered, no. Are you the Messiah? Are you Elijah? Are you the prophet? John was a powerful speaker and drew crowds from all over him. People left the city and came to the middle of nowhere simply to hear and follow him. He had his own followers or disciples who listened to him. Many of them could have thought he potentially could have been the Messiah. He spoke so powerfully and with such authority. And if he would have said, though, they would have followed him. It could have been very easy for him to be lured by the temptation of having that kind of power, that kind of potential influence over others, just to take that title when people were essentially willing to give it to him. But John actually knew who he was. He didn't need the validation of the crowds or of others. And so in verse 22, we see, finally then he said, or finally then they said to him, who are you? Give us an answer to take back to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? Now in reading this, it would seem like a very natural question to ask, who is this guy? But in this last question, in the way it's phrased, we actually get a little bit behind the scene of what that question is leading to. Here we see the motivation behind this question. Give us an answer so we can take it back to those who sent us. See, there there was a hidden agenda behind this question. And it was not a desire to actually know John. These guys weren't sitting around going, John, really like you. Tell me a little more about yourself. What are your hobbies? What do you do on the weekend here in the wilderness? What kind, of, what kind of locusts are your favorite? The dark green? The light green? No. They didn't ask about his personal ambitions. They were concerned about John because John was one who rocked the boat of the religious establishment and the politicization of the religious establishment. They wanted to know how to categorize or label this man. Essentially, this question was, we want to define you for the people that have sent us. Are you someone who will be on with our agenda, or are you against us? Are you a threat? See, even amongst the Jewish nations, there were various different types of religious leaders, and they had all their own uh, uh, theologies, their own uh, political kind of veins in which they went, and they were against each other. Were you in my camp, you were safe. If you aren't in my camp, I'm against you. Last week, I had the privilege of going to a Flames and Oilers game with Jason Copan. And I think there's a picture on the screen. Jason looks very normal, and that was the most normal picture I had from the game. But it's interesting, if you've ever had the, the opportunity to be wearing an opposition team's jersey at a, another team's home game, it's a very interesting experience because there's almost this perception people judge you instantly. Parents hold their children closer to them. People are a little more concerned, and they're like offset. They think that you're a mean guy, or that you're, you've got, you know, there's something wrong with you. Why? Because right away, there's kind of a label there, and you're not on my team. And over the game, usually I make friends with the people beside me who are wearing Oilers jerseys. But it's interesting how we, we make that division. See, our world also tends to do this all the time. We kind of have this hidden, are you for my cause? Trying to determine if you're worth listening to, if you're worth allowing into my life or not. If you're in my camp, I'll listen, but if you aren't, I won't. 
We saw this through COVID. Uh, I remember when people came out and you could hear the undertones constantly of conversations. People were trying to figure out, what's, what's your opinion on vaccines? What's your opinion on COVID? What's your opinion on lockdowns? And there was almost this like, I, I need to make sure you agree the same with me or else I'm not going to reveal much about myself. This happens around election time too. There's this polarization or whatever it is that's the hot button topic of the day. Our culture and our world has this way of saying, if you believe what I think, you're allowed. If you don't, you're out. I remember a few years ago, I went to a Christmas party of someone who was a congregation member and there was a small group that was hosting a Christmas party and they invited me to join them. And so I was the first to arrive. There was a snowstorm that night so not everybody was able to make it. And I got the opportunity to talk with a spouse of that congregation member. And they were not very much for the church. In fact, they didn't really like the church. But they didn't know who I was and we sat there and it was just the two of us and we had a great conversation for about 20 minutes. And I actually got into some really deep, good discussion. And then some of the other party members started to show up, and as soon as they did, the first person came in and said, oh, hi, Pastor Joel, and as soon as he heard Pastor Joel, his face changed, and that conversation ended, because I was no longer a safe member of the team. Church, we need to be different than this. We can't act the same way. Our relationships with others are not contingent on them believing everything or thinking everything we think. See, when we have an insecure understanding of our own identity, we often are not capable of being able to see the good in those differing from ourselves. We don't have the time to actually get to know people. We simply know positions and labels. Because our own insecurity in our own self will not allow for any variance or uncontrollable aspects in others. James 1.19 says this, Brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. If I can, slow to speak means we also need to be slow to judge. These religious leaders, they were looking to judge, not to get to know. But John had a secure idea of who he was. And so here we see in verse 23, an answer. John replied in the words of Isaiah the prophet, I am the voice of one calling in the wilderness. Make straight the way for the Lord. John's answer is rooted in his identity. It's not about himself, but he is a voice in the wilderness. Now, what does this mean? This is referencing Isaiah 40, verse 3. John was affirming he was the fulfillment of this prophecy, that he was called to tell people to get ready for the Messiah. The religious leaders wanted to focus this simply on John himself, on his religious ties, on his personal beliefs and policies. But John actually knew his true identity, and it was rooted in God and the call of God on his life. He was not a powerful speaker. He was not a rebel. He was not a wild man. He was not a healer. He was not a zealot. He was a voice called out to get people ready for the Messiah. Now, this response puzzled and frustrated the religious leaders and led them to their next question. And it's the second question we're going to explore in our passage together today. And the question is this, whose authority is John doing this by? What authority? Verse 24, now the Pharisees who had, who had been sent questioned him, why then do you baptize if you're not the Messiah, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? 
Now, a little understanding, baptism wasn't completely new in this day. The Jewish leaders of this day did have baptism. They would baptize Gentiles, or non-Jews, who wanted to convert to the Jewish faith. But John was doing things differently. John was not just baptizing Gentiles. John was baptizing Jews. Essentially, the question the Pharisees are asking here is, by whose authority is John doing this? See, in in the religious hierarchy of the day, you always had your teachers, your people that we look to. We teach the law of Moses. We saw the Pharisees do this against Jesus multiple times, saying, this is our authority. Or perhaps there was another Old Testament prophet. Or maybe it was an established, well-respected religious leader of the day. John, whose authority are you doing this by? In Matthew 21, 23 to 27, we see Jesus responding to another question by the religious leaders and talks about his own authority. And here we see Jesus correlates the authority given to John to baptize earlier and prepare a way for the Messiah and links it to the root of his own authority. That both of them were of the same origin, and it was not of human origin, but rather heavenly. John says this in response in verse 26, I baptize with water, John replied, but among you stands one you do not know. He is the one who comes after me, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. This all happened at Bethany on the other side of the Jordan where John was baptizing. So John states his authority came from the one who would come after him, the Messiah. And as we see through this chapter, Jesus. Notice in his response, John does not go on to defend his own credibility. I would have a hard time with that. I'm putting myself in John's shoes. I go, authority, you want to know what authority? Look at the people around here. Look at all the crowds of people who have come to the middle of nowhere just to hear and listen to me. Look at the people who have devoted their lives to follow me. You want to know what authority? This authority. Nor does John go and, and start to talk about kind of the, the, the origins of his teaching or his life. He doesn't pander to the religious or political systems of the day, trying to talk about the synagogues he studied at or what rabbis he learned the scriptures under. No, he didn't, because John knew who he was, because John knew whose he was. I'll say that again. John knew who he was because he knew whose he was. See, our identity stems not from what we have done, not from our skills, our connections, our power. Our true identity stems from whom we belong. If you are a child of God, you belong to him. That is the source of your identity. And the authority by which we live is in direct correlation to us having that firm identity. If you lived in the time where there was a king and kingdom, the king himself had ultimate authority and power throughout the realm of his own kingdom. But from that, he couldn't be every place at all times. So he would often have different people that were representatives of him, even a lowly page, perhaps, that would represent the king. They themselves, not of power, not of prestige, not anyone that someone would respect, but because when they were sent out with the royal seal, they represented the king. Whatever place they were sent to, they ultimately had the same type of authority as the king. People would listen to them and follow what they said. Why? Because there was a source of authority that they followed through. 
John had the courage and empowerment to do something different because of the authority he was under. He was under the direct authority of God. It was God's direction. If you are a follower of Jesus, you and I represent the king, and with that comes the authority by which we live. And so from here we see this greatest declaration in verse 29. As John the next day saw Jesus coming towards him and said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the one I meant when I said, A man who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but the reason I came baptizing with water was that he might be revealed. He came after me, but he was before me. As was discussed briefly last week, Jesus, yes, was born physically after John, six months after John, in fact. But Jesus, while he had a physical birth, that was not the origins of him. Jesus was 100% man, but he was also 100% God. And with that, there was no beginning. He is God, and he is eternal, so he also came before him. This term, the Lamb of God, who takes the sin of the entire world is a term that encompasses the whole of the Old and the New Testament. In Genesis 1 to 3, we see creation, how God made all that is, including mankind, and it was good. And he made it so that he can have a relationship with him. But in Genesis 3, we see the entrance of sin, and sin brought with it death. Death, separation from God and the life that he gives. And so from that, we no longer had the relationship we once did with God. So God, through the Old Testament, instituted something called sacrifice because sin required death. The penalty of it was your life. But God instituted sacrifice that the, that the Israelites, that the Jews, they could sacrifice a lamb. They would slit its throat and spread its blood. Sorry if that's gross, but that's the reality. And they would spread its blood because blood was equal to life. And it didn't get rid of the sin, but it would temporarily put a pause on it to cover it. Jesus was the Lamb of God. He would cover the penalty of sin. But Jesus was not just another physical life sacrificed. See, at this time, every day in the temple, there were two lambs. On any given day, at least two lambs that were sacrificed just to cover sin. That on top of all the special ceremonies of atonement, of Passover... But unlike those lambs, Jesus was a perfect sacrifice. He was 100% man, 100% God, the only perfect human being that ever was, the only one who did not have a sin to be forgiven for. But he stood in our place and was able to once for all pay for sin. And unlike a sheep that couldn't take away sin but just postpone, Jesus' perfect blood paid the cost for sin for the whole entire world. This is why, as followers of Jesus, we do not believe that we are saved by our good works. Your good works mean nothing to God. You cannot earn back what you owe, but rather it is a free gift of grace given through Christ, the Lamb of God. It is the Lamb of God who now allows us to come back in right relationship with God, restored into the relationship we were always called to, once again united to the authority that allows us to live and given the true identity by which we are called and always meant to be. It's under this new authority that we get to take the identity as children of God. 
I want to pause before we finish our message this morning here because if there's anyone here today and you have never in your life taken the opportunity, maybe the Holy Spirit that was with John from infancy, maybe perhaps it's already working on your heart this morning, that you know that you do not have that life. You do not have that relationship and you do not have that identity. You are still struggling in your own sin, that there is freedom for you this morning. And I want to give an opportunity right now for you to take a step to invite God to come live in you. It says, as we do, his Holy Spirit comes to take life in us. And with that comes a newness of life. So a simple invitation. If that's you, we're just, all of us are going to pause for a moment here. I'm just going to ask for you to just bow your heads and close your eyes with me. Because I want to give that opportunity because I don't want anybody to leave this morning and be stuck in that old life. Because there is freedom available for you today and authority and power for you to live your life the way God has always intended and called you to. So if that's you, you can say a prayer simply like this. Heavenly Father, thank you for Jesus, the Lamb of God. Jesus, I believe you are the Son of God. Thank you for dying on the cross for me to take away my sin. I know I have made mistakes in my life. I have sinned. Please forgive me for wrongs I have done, those I know and those I can't even remember. Make me new. Holy Spirit, Come and live in me and lead my life as I live for you every day. In Jesus' name. The Bible tells us that when we do that, when we believe in our hearts, confess with our lips that he is just to forgive us of our sin and you are a new creation. A new creation. That brings us to our last question this morning. And that question is why baptism? Verse 32, then John gave this testimony. I saw the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, come down from heaven as a dove on him, Jesus. And I myself did not know him, but the one who sent me to baptize with water told me, the man on whom you see the Spirit come down and remain is the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. I have seen and I have testified that this is God's chosen one. Here we see John's own first-hand account of witnessing the Holy Spirit coming down on Jesus. A reminder that John the Baptist is not the one who wrote this gospel, John. That's the, that's the disciple, John. But these are John's own thoughts as he obviously shared them. This testifies that he is God's chosen one, the Lamb of God, the Son of God. Again, a reminder from infancy, John was filled with the Holy Spirit, and it was the Spirit that revealed to him who Jesus was. He told him what to look for. See, when we choose to align our identity in Christ, when we are aligned with the authority of God in our lives, and he is speaking and living in us, when we have his authority, it's amazing how we see the world differently and we see things for how they are. It's why he was the only one at that time to be able to see and know who Jesus was. Now, John's baptism was different than the baptism that we practice today. The baptism of John was a baptism of repentance. John was preparing people for the arrival of the Messiah, Jesus. 
We see throughout the New Testament in passages like Acts 18, 24 to 25, and Acts 19, 1 to 6, that John's baptism is actually insufficient. It's not complete. It was preparing for, so it was incomplete for a follower of Jesus. There was something more to come. And in this passage, John explains that Jesus' baptism was a spiritual baptism. It's not simply preparing for, but partnering with the work that has already been accomplished through Jesus. Christian baptism, as we practice in our church, is a public declaration of a personal faith. In Mark 16, 16, we see that before being baptized, we must first come to personal faith of belief in Christ. That's why as a church, we do not do infant baptism, because an infant is not capable of making that decision for themselves. You are not saved through the waters of baptism. Rather, baptism is a public declaration of a personal decision and transformation that has already happened. Baptism is symbolic of our renewed spiritual state, that we are, as we go down into the water, buried with Christ in his death. Our old sin is buried there. And we are raised with him to new life, coming out of the water alive to our new identity as children of God. Church, if you, have not become, if you become a follower of Jesus and have not been baptized yet, then I want to encourage you. November 25th is your opportunity. Over the years, I've had many who've talked to me and they've held off on getting baptized because they go, well, my life's not quite in line yet. I'm still struggling with this sin or I still got some stuff to figure out in my life, so I'm not ready to be baptized. Baptism is not something you do when your life is perfect because if you're waiting for that, you will never get baptized. Rather, baptism is simply a step of obedience it's making something that's already private, public. It's kind of like if you were ever in a serious relationship, there's that time where you don't share with people. When me and my wife started dating, we had some time where we didn't tell anybody because we just wanted to see how that was going to go. But there's a point in life where if I kept my relationship with her secret the, our entirety of our lives, wouldn't that seem dysfunctional? There's a time when you've got to make it public. This is who I am and this is what I am about. That's what baptism is. And if you have a personal faith relationship with Jesus, if you love Jesus and you want to follow him, then you fit all the qualifications to be baptized. And it's time. The enemy would love for you to put that off because he knows that Jesus is actually commanded of you. Jesus demonstrated himself. He put himself as an example. It's why he was baptized he didn't need to be, but he did it as an example for you and I, for us to follow. And then in Matthew chapter 28, the very last instructions he gives to his disciples in verse 19, as in like, these are the most important things you need to do before he ascends to heaven. He says, to go to all nations, to make disciples, and to baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. If you've held off, don't, because it's time. And as you do obediently follow God, I promise you, you will not regret that. Because every time we obey God, we draw closer to Him. And in that, we get more rooted in the authority that empowers us to live our lives and become more established in the identity that we truly have as children of God. So to close, just before Pastor Marlowe comes, just as a review of what we've talked about, who you are, your identity, is rooted in whose you are, as in whose authority by which you live, which will impact how we live.